Good morning, uh, everybody. Welcome to Calvary Church. Thanks for carving out some time to worship with us. If you're a person who comes every Sunday, man, so grateful you're part of our body. And if you're somebody who maybe this is your first Sunday, uh, we just pray that whatever you came in the door looking for, um, man, that God will meet you and maybe you'll get some things uh, that could be even more important than what you came in the door for, because we're going to open up God's Word in a minute. And uh, appreciate Emmanuel for putting th- what man his words about lament and putting some things in context. It's a beautiful sunny day outside, and for probably a ton of us, there's happiness, right, to some degree, because we're going to get together with family, or we're going to get to put some mulch down, um, and we have our stories, and we have our things that bring us joy, but it goes without saying that that is obviously not the experience of millions of people around the world today. Um, And Emmanuel hit on it, but while many of us are happy and we have joy, there's some families at St. Joseph's and some families at Fairfield Prep uh, who don't have joy. There's countless numbers of people in Ukraine who don't have joy. Uh, There's probably countless numbers of people in Russia who don't have joy. There are families who will be going to loved ones' graves who died while they were serving in the military, either in active duty or in training incidents. Um, My father was in the military. When we were in a church in Savannah, we had the honor of having a ton of Army Ranger and Black Hawk pilots there and got to know their stories pretty well. It's a day in the American calendar that we have Memorial Day coming up. We'll remember those folks who died in the military. So there's families who tomorrow will not necessarily be a happy day. And then obviously uh, there's a situation in Texas. And yesterday I've now got this great idea that I'm going to become a millionaire by selling stuff on eBay. Uh, And so we went up to Newtown to go track down this tag sale. And we were driving through Newtown, and there was a lemonade stand with some young kids right outside of Sandy Hook who were raising money for the victims in Texas. Man, sobering, right? And for those of us, like Emmanuel said, who probably some of us respond to all this, we just brush it off, it's too much. We just can't handle it, so we don't think about it, and we put a little box, and we don't open the box. But unfortunately, there's countless number of people around us who the box was ripped open, and they don't want it. And there will be a moment in your life when your box is ripped open, and you suffer some sort of loss or pain or unknown that you weren't expecting. Some of us just put it in a box, and we don't think about it. Others of us think about it, but we just try not to think deeply because we just kind of cling to a Christian cliche, like some sort of antibacterial soap to make it all feel better. And then there's other of us who are like, man, how do we, what do we do with this? We have these attributes of God, which like the song said, right, what is, what is true in the light is also true in the dark about who God is. And those things are true, but it sure raises a lot of questions, at least for me. I mean, if that was one of my children, I'd have all sorts of questions about why the God of the universe didn't intervene. And that's good to have questions. It's okay to have questions because the Bible is a book filled with questions. I was talking to another pastor this week and 
Uh, he's going to preach on the, he's going through the book of John. He's going to preach on the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. There was a friend of Jesus who had died. And it's really, really interesting because Jesus hears about it. But you know what Jesus does? He doesn't rush over there. He just hangs out where he is. He gets finally after a certain period of hours and a day or so have gone by and he gets to where his friend has died and he's greeted by the sisters of the friend of his who died. And what one of the sisters said to him, I think even both might say in, in John, they say, Jesus, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. You know what's within that question, within that statement? Jesus, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. In other words, Jesus, you could have stopped this. What's under that is the question of Jesus, well, why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you do anything? And what's so interesting is when that question is posed to Jesus, like nearly every other time in the scripture, you know what Jesus does? He dodges the question. He doesn't answer it. Instead, he moves into this conversation with a question lingering. You know what he says? Hey, believe in me. Trust me. And sometimes that's all we got. Sorry. That's what my seminary education gave me. Not the answer to the questions, because if God himself doesn't answer the questions, we dare not to presume an answer. We do what Jesus told us to do, even in the darkest moments, we trust him. Even when everything within us screams not to. Book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk or however you want to pronounce it, it ends with this thought. It's a, it's a series of kind of questions and observations, and the prophet ends with a statement because he still has things he doesn't understand that don't make sense. And he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive oil fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stall. In other words, when everything in my life falls apart... Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's easy for me to read that because I'm not going through a crisis. Hard for those of you who are, hard for those families all around the world who are today. But when we don't have answers to the questions, we still have a God that we crumble on and say, like Peter said, right, where else am I going to go? So we do what we did this morning, and we sing, and we pray, and we lament, and we trust, and we, don't, and, and we don't do it alone. We do it in a community, and we do it as a community, and that's what we've had the chance to do this morning. And so I'm going to pray now, uh, as we've already done, and then we're going to move into our text, and I'm excited because, like I said, we're studying the book of Revelation in the fall. And like I always say this because I, want, I know you guys all rotate through. We're not studying it because I think the world is ending. We're not studying it because I think any political leader is the Antichrist and I'm going to roll that out to you. We're studying it because it's an important book if we are followers of Jesus to know what is this confusing, strange, hard to process, but we got to dig into it like a good steak and sink our teeth into it and understand it. But the whole book of Revelation, I'm going to spoil it right now. You know what it's about? The king is coming. The king is coming. And the ending sentences of Revelation are what we're entitled it, right? This idea of come, Lord Jesus, come, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And one day he is coming, and we won't wrestle through painful moments again, but that day is not today. 
And I'm sure until that day, those painful moments will come again and again and again. And when it all falls apart, and we don't have the answers, we're going to do what we've done again and again and again. And we're going to trust Jesus. So let's pray. And then we're going to move into the sermon as we work through the sermon series that we're in. Uh, Father, we intercede this morning on behalf of families around us just 10 or so miles down the road in Newtown on behalf of St. Joe's and Fairfield Prep families. We intercede on behalf of families in Texas. We intercede on behalf of families in Ukraine and families in Russia who are caught up in something I'm sure they don't want to be caught up in. We intercede on behalf of families in this room who have lost someone through their service in the military or just lost someone. And Father, we ask on behalf of those who may not even be able to ask themselves this morning for divine peace and strength and a foundation to be able to simply just crumble upon. Father, we don't know the answers. All we know is what you reveal in your scripture. And so give us the grace, Father, to cling to truths about you and give us the expectant hope and the prayer that we want Jesus to come back and make everything okay. So we're grateful they were able to pray for people who are grieving. Father, we're grateful they were able to open up your word today and continue to try to be faithful students of the word to see what it says and we pray for you to honor this time father give us words of wisdom as we process uh, all the situations in our culture and our world around us um, and we're just thankful for hope uh, so father with the holy spirit work and what we have this morning will you shape us individually and shape us corporately for those word these words which i know you're doing and we ask this in the name of jesus our king Amen. Well, I'll piggyback off something else Emmanuel mentioned in his words, uh, introing the time of lament, because this past week, I was working on this sermon, and two kind of news stories broke of, of horrific uh, leadership failures uh, within a denomination and countless pastors and then within a pastor, and some of you may have heard about that. And actually, I just lied to you because as I was reviewing my sermon, a third news story broke about the failure of a pastor. As Emmanuel said, right, these three stories in the past seven days about guys who stood in places just like I'm standing and ruined the reputation of Jesus because of their improper sexual actions, that is followed up, or that is built upon, I guess, by years with countless numbers of celebrity pastors who for whatever reason have committed a range of acts that have disqualified them from leadership. You can hear podcasts about it, you can read exposés about it, you can watch documentaries about it. And the failures in the past seven days which were built upon the countless number of failures by pastors, celebrity pastors over the past years are built upon an ugly and a mean season of division and animosity and conflict within churches. And I'm, I'm, we, we got some things we're going to talk about today about the church in general, the big C church, right? I, and none of my comments are directed towards any of 
us or you. I have this deal that if I don't like the way you drive through the parking lot, I'm not going to have a sermon on how to drive through the parking lot. All right? I'm going to come tell you I'll stop being such a knucklehead. So don't read into this. Don't be like, who is he talking to someone at Calvary? I'm only talking to someone at Calvary to the extent that all of us are part of a larger church body. This is not directed to us particularly. This is directed to churches and Christians in general. And I'm grateful. Have we had our speed bumps over the past years? With all this happening in our culture, we have, but man, for a bunch of us, we're united and we're good, even if we don't see eye to eye on anything, but that's not the case in many churches, because over the past years, there has been, in churches around us, division, conflict, spewing of unkind words that flowed from different thoughts that different Christians had on how a church should or shouldn't react to race on how a church should or shouldn't react to either of the political candidates, on whether a church was or wasn't woke, when the people spewing those allegations probably don't even know what the word woke mean. It's, it's not been uh, the best season in churches nor for churches. That's why countless number of guys who do this for a living are like, I'm done gone. That's why some very normal, well-adjusted pastors, and I'm not going to do this, at least not today, (laughs) maybe next Sunday. That's why normal, well-adjusted pastors in the middle of a sermon have just said, you know what, I I can't do this anymore. I'm going to resign. It's been tough for pastors. It's been tough for churches. It's not been the best season in churches or for churches, many of which was brought on by ourselves, by leaders brought on by ourselves by leaders who simply don't do what the Bible says to do in terms of their own sexuality and holiness, and brought on by congregants and churches who seem unable to speak with charity towards one another about issues about which Christians are free to disagree. Now, have churches always had moral failures of pastors? Yeah. Have churches always split? Yeah. I'm working through the book of Acts on my own, tracking the life of Peter, and it's interesting. It's a good season in the church, but in the early church, you get a couple of months of rolling it. Man, conflict comes in that church. It's always been part of the stories. Have pastors always failed and churches split through the centuries? Yes. This is not a new story, but this is our story now in our culture, in our world, in our reality. And it's really easy for us, we could spend the rest of however many minutes we have today talking about all that's wrong in the churches. These churches are doing this wrong. This is what the problem is. This wasn't shouldn't look like. But, but a more productive way is to think about, well, what should a church look like? What should a group of people who, many of whom claim to believe the same core thing, what should they look like, right? What, what should their feel be? How should they do life together? My brother-in-law, who's much more generous than me, we, you know, Casey's got some sisters, they got some husbands, um, we, we draw little names at Christmas, and everybody's supposed to get everybody like a 20-buck gift. Well, I'm a pastor with several kids in college and other things coming down the road, and so, man, I honor that $20. <clears throat> I'm like, 1975, close enough, right? We're good. My brother-in-law, who's pretty, very, quite successful in what he does, uh, he's much more gracious. He didn't honor it. He, he overspent, but I'll take it. He bought me for Christmas an uni pizza oven. I got him like an Amazon gift card for $19. And this, no, it was 20 
He got me this uni pizza oven. Have you ever seen these uni pizza ovens? They're spectacular. It's like about this long and about that high. And it, it is, mine's wood fired. We, it's been like 30 degrees and sleeting until about last week here in Connecticut. I don't know if you know that. And so last week it was finally like the sun came out and it wasn't sleeting. So I fired up the uni pizza oven and put it together. I mean, this thing will cook you a pizza in like a minute and 47 seconds. That is not a lie. Now, you had to put it together. There's like four pieces, and there was one flap that is on the inside to keep the flames from coming out and scorching you to death, and the, the, the flap could have gone either way. And I'm like, huh, I don't know which way is the flap. I don't know. The direction wasn't clear. And so you know what was amazing? There was a picture in the little book, and you were able to look at the picture to see where the flap should go, the correct place to get a sense of what this thing should look like. Pictures sometimes help us know what something ideally should look like. If you've ever been building something from Ikea and be like me and like, I can't really fit, let me just look at the picture and see where this bracket goes. Pictures sometimes are really helpful to me and really helpful to you for us to know what something should look like. And so today, we're going to get this picture of what the ideal church should look like. We're going to get a picture of what the ideal church should look like. This incident, this story, Here's a big fancy theological term. Ready? I've never said this with a mic around me. I'm so excited about my This pericope. I know. If you go to seminary, all those nerds are going to be like, let's study the pericope. And they're like, bro, what are you talking about? That means it's like <clears throat> how people who think they're smart say the word story. Whatever. I got a pericope for you. So... We're going to study this final story in our series we've been going through. What we've been doing is we've been studying the 40 days or so from when Jesus was resurrected to when he ascended back into heaven. And we've been seeing some key things that he did in those to build some themes in this after series. We've learned about our purpose. We've learned about restoration. And this final week in this series, this final story, is going to be the beginning of the church. Last week, Jesus ascended up to heaven. This week, the church begins, and I know some of you are thinking, like, I thought you were supposed to end when Jesus ascended, but here's the reality, right? The, the story of Jesus leaving earth is inextricably linked with the story of the church beginning on earth. You can't divide those two things up. The end of the story of Jesus on the earth is the beginning of the story of the church on earth, and the beginning of the story of the church on earth flows from Jesus leaving earth. These two things go together, so we're going to study the beginning of the church, and we're going to get a picture of what the ideal church should be. We're going to see how the church began. We're going to look at the very first like <clears throat> church kind of service thing. We're going to see some characteristics of the early church and get a picture and a snapshot of what a church should be of what a church could be, of what we, together, through the grace of the Holy Spirit, the potential of what we could be like in Fairfield County to build upon what we already are. And I say this every time I say something like that, what will largely determine if we are the picture that lines up with the ideal community, you know what will largely determine that? You and me. Because the church is not some floating up here, like that's the church. Hey, y'all all are the church. Or if you don't know Southern talk, you guys, we're the church. We are the church. And if this church 
is going to line up with a picture of the ideal church, that will hinge upon what you do, it will hinge upon what we do, and it will hinge upon what I do as a member along with us. We have a great opportunity to be like this, and so we're going to see and think about what it's going to be. We're going to wrap up the series next week, and then we're going to start a series in um, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John for a few weeks. We're going to do some I Am statements, hit Revelation in the fall. But here for today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And then I'm going to say, just relax, don't freak out at first. I told my wife this, and she's like, what? Okay, we're going to see 10 traits of the early church. Now, we're not going to see all 10 today. I know you're like, bro, i got to fire up my grill. Don't keep me here until 1245. We're not going to see all 10 today. Today, eh, we'll probably see three-ish. And then we'll finish it up next week. I'm excited about the three we have today. But next week, I think we're going to, next week, there's going to be a lot of practical, a lot of life together stuff. So I'd encourage you to come back and and finish up the search series. So 10 traits of the ideal church out of Acts chapter 2 largely. We'll start today. We'll finish it up next week. And then we'll wrap up our series. So I'm going to read some text, okay? I'm going to kind of tell you a little bit about, uh, read some text, and here's what I want you to listen to as I read it. I want you to listen to how God is miraculously working, okay? As I read it, just listen to, whoa, supernatural stuff that's, that's happening that put into motion the catalyst to bring about the first attendees of the first church ever in history. Here's where we're going to start. We're going to start in Acts chapter 1, 12 through 14. Anybody remember my motto from last week that I wanted a t-shirt? Bring the word, grab a bulletin. Bring the word, grab the bulletin. Hopefully you brought the word. If you brought the word, open it up, Acts 1, 12 through 14. Jesus, like we saw last week, just went up to heaven. The disciples see him go. As we talked about, they now walk back into the city of Jerusalem, right? It's, I don't know how long it took. They get back to Jerusalem. They start doing their life together, and we get a snapshot of what they're doing. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journeys away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Jesus has told these guys, hey... Right? Wait in Jerusalem, and my power is going to come upon you. The Spirit's going to come upon you. It's something that he's promised. Most scholars think the disciples are with these ladies, that they're all praying, okay, God, you promised to give us the power. Will you give us the power? And so they're waiting for that moment. We skip over to chapter 2, and we see what kind of flowed from their prayers and what happened. And chapter 2, verse 1 says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, Pentecost was this feast, this holiday in the Jewish calendar. And so they'd been celebrating Pentecost, interestingly, in the Protestant church and even the Catholic calendar. At the day of Pentecost that's talked about here is celebrated June 5th. That's next Sunday, I think. If I'd been a really good pastor, I would have talked about this on June 5th. And I'd have been like, you are so amazing. You already know I'm not amazing, so why, why confuse you? Next Sunday, June 5th, is when the Christian calendar celebrates the events we're reading here. When the day of Pentecost <clears throat> arrived, they were all together in one place. They're all in one big facility. There's, most scholars think there's 120 people. At this point, there's about 120 who believe in Jesus, understood the story. All of that group is together in this big room praying, interacting, doing some things, and here's what happens. And suddenly... 
there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We are not going to answer the question of if speaking in tongues still happens today. Sorry, I answered it. Well, I didn't answer it. I gave some thoughts when we did a Corinthian series a long time ago. Couple of just quick points. When it says that they were speaking in other tongues, that other word there is the word glossia. That word refers to other known languages. What these guys were doing were not speaking gibberish. What is very clear through that word, what is very clear in the very next sentences we're going to read, is these people that were Jewish dudes were speaking another known earthly language that was not their known earthly language. I do not know Italian. I know a few words, some of which are helpful, some of which are words I picked up when I was 11 at my Italian barber shop that I shouldn't probably know, right? I know like a handful of Italian words. But Italian is a known earthly language. If all of a sudden I transition into Italian and I speak the rest of the sermon in Italian, that would be a pretty remarkable thing. I don't speak Italian. That is what was going on here. These guys were speaking other known languages. And so what happens when they start speaking this? Now, there were dwelling, verse 5, in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. All these Jews were here from all other countries because they were there to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And there was this law that if you were able to come to Jerusalem, that was the expectation. So from all around the region, Jewish people who spoke different languages and knew different languages in their native region came to Jerusalem. And they all of a sudden, right, they'd heard the wind, this thing. Just like that. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. And at this sound, probably the sound of the wind and the sound of 120 people starting to speak loudly, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. There are a lot of people living in a lot of different countries that God had divinely brought together in Jerusalem for this moment. And this is what we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to another, what does this mean? What does this mean? In their own language, they were hearing these guys tell mighty works of God. And the question of most, some of them are like, dude, these dudes are boozed. You'll see that in the next verse. But for most of them, they're like, whoa, what, what is this? What does this mean? Peter then puts into context for them in the next verses what it means. He tells them why this is happening and the significance of it. It is in Acts 2, verses 14 through 36. I am not going to read all that today, but, man, it would be great for you to read it next week. And if you do, you'll see Peter kind of does the pattern that Jesus taught them to do last week when they put into context some Old Testament and then leverage that as a stepping stone to Messiah. Read it on your own, but here's a cliff note. These guys are asking, what does this mean? We hear everybody speaking their own language. Peter steps up to address it, and here's kind of the highlights. He says, hey, everybody. What you're seeing happened is prophesied. What the prophecy shows and what the truth is about the person of Jesus is Jesus is the Messiah. 
and y'all rejected him and crucified him, and that was not the best. And these guys are impacted, and they're troubled. And their response to this is in verse 37 of chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Repent. Be baptized. Believe. Now, what we believe at Calvary, what, what Protestants believe is that many swaths of Protestantism, the baptism doesn't save you. It's a symbol, right? There's some exegesis there we can unpack if you're interested in that. But what he's pretty much saying is, hey, you guys need to respond to Jesus. You need to repent. You need to turn. You need to trust. And you need to believe for the forgiveness of your sins. And then we see what happens in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about three thousand souls one sermon <clears throat> one day three thousand people convert and there is now a church there is now a group of christians there is now an assembly of believers in a city who believe the same thing and on that very first next church service they're going to have man there's a core group of three thousand people I would love to plant a church with a core group of 3,000 people. That's what happened. And all of that happened, not because Peter was the best pastor, not because of this disconnected thing. All of that happened because God and his sovereignty miraculously did some things to empower the message, to put things in a context and a position for people then to respond through the power of the Holy Spirit. God was the catalyst behind this all. God supernaturally worked through these tongues. God supernaturally draw these people. God supernaturally worked through Peter. God empowered, caused, right, led to all of this happening. This wasn't this massive campaign by Peter and his buddies to let's go buy the hottest, newest church planting book and go do it. Let's put some mailers in people's mailboxes. This wasn't their plan, this was God's plan, and God empowered it. We see the first trait of a church. The first trait of a church, of an ideal church, is that it's empowered by God. It's empowered by God. This is God's church. You, me as part of you. We are a flock of people who do some things really well, and at least I'll speak for myself, who are some nincompoops. But we got strengths and we got weaknesses, and we're all thrown together in this stew called Calvary Church. And you know what? We belong to God. This flock, this group is God's. And God does within us, in his timing, what God sovereignly chooses to do. Can we make dumb choices and sinful choices to cause things to go not so great? Sure. Could we act wisely to try to steward what God's doing, to try to continue to put things to cause things to go well? Yes. But at the end of the day, 
this is, we're God's. And there's peace in that. And there's comfort from that. I kind of can say this. Do I, as a pastor, is part of my identity somewhat linked with us and how we do? Yeah. But, man, there's a lot of pastors out there who their identity is so deeply linked with their church that they can't divide themselves from it. It all becomes about them. This is not about any pastor. This is about our ultimate shepherd, Jesus. And if you're in a ministry, if you're leading a community group, if you're leading in kids' ministry, if you're serving on the tech team, if you're on the worship team, if you're on our elder board or any of our teams, right, what, what happens in a church is when we forget that things are empowered by God and we start to think that things are empowered by us, when a pastor or a leader thinks that the success that they're seeing is because of them, it causes pride. And when a ministry leader or pastor thinks that success is dependent upon them, Man, that causes stress and burnout and ugh. Success is not because of us. Success does not depend upon us. An ideal church is a church that is empowered by God. And God supernaturally worked in their story to enable them on that day to be best positioned to make disciples and to fulfill their mission. And that's what God does with us if we're willing to follow. God will supernaturally position us to put us in the best position in this moment, in his wisdom, in his plan, so that we can be positioned to make disciples. And then he says, hey, go do it. Go do it. There's this verse in Colossians that I come to a lot and that I share with other pastors a lot. And this is what Paul writes, and I think it shows this balance. Colossians 1, he says, For him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we present everyone mature in Christ. So he's saying, man, I'm on my mission to make disciples. I'm on my mission to mature people and to convert people. And then I love this next line, Colossians 1, verse 29. It's not on the screen. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. What an amazing example of the balance that people in Christian ministry should have. Man, I'm going to work hard at this. Right, that's what Paul, Paul's saying, I am toiling at this. Do you know what toiling means? It means he's saying like, man, sometimes I feel like I'm on that deadliest catch boat. And sometimes I feel like it is 10 degrees out, the Arctic water is negative 40, I've been up for 29 hours hauling crab pots and I gotta do it again and I'm gonna toil. But what Paul says is I'm, I'm working hard at it, but I'm not working through my own power on it. I'm depending upon his power, which he's so powerful, he works within me. An ideal church is a church that is empowered by God. So for those questions for us, is there an area of leadership or ministry for you where you're taking credit for something that God's done? On the flip side, is there an area of leadership or ministry where you're putting pressure on yourself for something that is ultimately God's responsibility to bring about, neither of which is ideal? Are you taking credit for something that in a ministry, in a relationship, in a disciple-making thing, that's something God's done? Or are you putting pressure on yourself to see something happen when really it is God's responsibility to make that thing happen? First trait of a church is that it's empowered by God. And then we get this little picture. This is like my uni booklet right? Except it's not a picture of a pizza oven, it's a picture of a church. And we see the very next thing that starts to happen as these Christians get together. They find them a school somewhere, because that's what every church plant does. 
They didn't really do that, right? But they get them a local elementary school. They put out the little banners out front that says, welcome. They have really nice people with their name tags in Jerusalem, the first church of Jerusalem. And we get a snapshot of what that church body looked like and was doing. I'm going to read this, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. And then we're just going to start unpacking a couple of these today, and then we'll be done and we'll finish it up next week. Here's the picture of what they're doing. And they devoted themselves... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food and glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Having favor with all the people. That's a huge line. There's, what we're talking about today is good stuff. Next week's going to be good stuff. <clears throat> it's going to be good stuff because I don't think the church in America today has much favor with outsiders. They did. What was that favor linked with? How were they acting? We're going to press into all that next week. They had favor with all people. Praising God, I mean, favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So let's just start, right? What, what, what's the second trait? Right? As we look at this picture of the church, what's the second thing we see? We, we see it right off, right? And they devoted themselves to bop up and bop up and bop up and bop up up right then a bullet point a laundry list of different things that they devoted themselves that's right that that's what it says when Luke describes what these guys were doing he he doesn't say and they sometimes did some things in the church body when it worked out for them or or maybe what he says was ah and these guys if there was nothing better to do he doesn't say that He's describing their, their attitude, their connection, their engagement level to not just this, but to this laundry list of things, right? When you think about all that they were doing, the word that Luke chooses to say, man, when they did those things, they were devoted. What, what does that describe? What, what does a group of devoted People, what level of commitment does that suggest? When you hear that, and you don't need to answer out loud, but if you want to, whatever. <clears throat> Man, you hear about a group of people who are devoted to something. Just think about, okay, in your mind, what does that look like? What are they doing? What are they not doing? What's their attitude? What's their priorities? What commitment level? Here's the second trait of this church and an ideal church. Devoted and committed participants. Devoted and committed participants. One thing our team frequently talks about is, especially coming out of COVID, is the group of folks who are regular online and for whatever reason, that's the path they're choosing, but, but they're committed to being part of our body through that. But what we talk about a lot is you. We're like, man, we don't have as many people showing up as we did three, four years ago, but the people who are showing up now, they're like into it. They're engaged. They're on fire. <clears throat> and I promise, I think I mean this. <laughs> I don't know. <clears throat> My wife's like, ah. <clears throat> I, I think I mean this. I do. I would rather have 
300, 350 people who, man, they are engaged and on fire and devoted than 800 consumers of Christianity who just come and, and aren't engaged. I mean it, I think. <laughs> I'd rather be like, yeah, we got us about 10,000 people at Calvary, and you know, kind of a small church. Man, you guys. So th- again, hear my heart. This is not trying to bash you guys. Sometimes when pastors do this, like, oh, he's beating us up and we're not doing anything. I, nobody's saying you're doing anything wrong. We're just talking about what we see here, and we're talking about the global church thing. These were people who were devoted and committed, and we are so grateful for so many of you who you are all in. And for those of you who aren't, Jesus wants you to be. And if it's not at Calvary, that's fine. But go somewhere. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. I think I send more people to other churches than Calvary Church. <laughs> I do. Sometimes because people are like, I don't like you, Smith. I'm going, that's cool. I'm at the gym. I meet this young guy. He's like, oh, you're Peter. I'm like, yeah, who are you? He's like, oh, I watch you online. I've never come. I'm like, oh. He's like, yeah, we're trying to figure out the right church. I'm like, tell me about yourself. I'm like, you know where you should go. <laughs> I'm like, man, you come to Calvary because we're awesome. But if you're looking for what you told me, this might be a better way. Right? So devoted and committed participants. There was a survey committed by Lifeway Research out of Nashville last in March of 2021. They surveyed 1,000 Protestant pastors. And they asked them, this was the question, the people dynamic challenges they faced in their churches. 75% of the pastors listed this answers people's apathy or lack of commitment. A thousand pastors were surveyed, asked the biggest challenge you face with people in your church. 75% of the pastors all put down people's apathy coming out of COVID or lack of commitment. That, that, that's not, oops, that's not these guys' problems. They were all in. Here's a quote that if you've been coming to our class after this, which I've loved because I've enjoyed your dialogue and your comments and your, your perceptions. Here's a quote that some of you already heard. This comes out of a book um, quoting another article. It's in the Wisdom Pyramid, a guy named Brett McCracken. Churches are full of sinful work-in-progress people after all. And problems inevitably arise. Interpersonal conflicts, leadership scandals, hypocrisy, abuses of authority, hashtag church too, cover-ups, apathy about injustice and the plight of the marginalized, marrying faith too close to partisan politics. For a lot of young people who have been reared on technology that allows them to filter out anything difficult or annoying, church and its motley crew of often frustrating people might seem like more trouble than it's worth, which then leads to apathy which then leads to uninvolvement, which then leads to a lack of devotion. Our failures as Christian leaders are part of what has caused this to happen. Our failures as Christian leaders is part of what has caused the young, amazing, late-teen, mid-teen, young 20s generations to say, I'm done with my grandma and grandpa's church. I'm done with my parents' church. We need to look in the mirror, and I appreciate somebody's comment last night in the class and acknowledge that. At the same time, that's led to some apathy because we've not led well. But at the same time, choices of church attendees about their level of engagement has to also be thought about. So two broad observations and then we'll start to wind this down about 
Okay, what, why aren't Christians today devoted? What's happening? What's going on? I've served in three churches, my third church now, and I've served in the Northeast and the Southeast. So this is not just Northeast, this is culturally. <clears throat> but two observations about what congregants maybe could do some opportunities for some further engagement and devotion, because that's what we saw the ideal church had. Uh, Thanksgiving dinner. It all has to do really with food. So the first food illustration is Thanksgiving dinner. I love my mom's stuffing. I know some of you are like, my mom makes like stuffing that is divinely inspired by Jesus. It's good. I mean, I love it. So whenever thank, I have Thanksgiving, pretty much the only time we have it. Whenever Thanksgiving comes around, like for a lot of us, that is the most important thing. So do you know what I do? I get me my little plate. And literally, if, I, if the second thing I haven't hit is stuffing, I've done it wrong. Because I want, you know what I do? I take the spoon and I plop, plop, plop. Because I want to make sure I got enough room on my plate for stuffing. Right? Because that is the most important thing to me. So I take the stuffing, I put it first on my plate. And then it's like, okay, well, yeah, I got a little more room. So I add a little couple of green beans, boop. Mashed potatoes, boop, right? Okay, a slice of turkey. Nobody likes turkey. <laughs> you don't. If you say you do, you're lying. And don't bother coming up to me and saying, no, I really like turkey. No, you don't. You're lying. I don't need any turkey. I just need stuffing. So I put the stuffing first thing on my plate because I don't want to be trying to figure out where the stuffing goes on my plate after I got a lot of less unimportant things on there. I don't want to figure out I got a bunch of turkey I don't like and green beans and, and oh, I don't have any more room for stuffing. Stuffing goes first because it's the most important. What many families in the Northeast and the Southeast that I've seen for 18, whatever, how many years? Man, the first thing they scoop on their plate is sports. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Love sports. Look at me. I'm a jock. I'm an athlete. Okay. They do. Is there anything wrong with sports? No. Me, as a leader, the most important, some of the most important leadership things I've learned was in sports. There's a guy coming here now who just retired as a colonel in the military after 25 years in service, six or seven tours, and we were both talking about a common coach we had, and he said some of the best leadership lessons I learned were sports. Sports are good in the right context and prioritize properly. And what I've seen in my years is a lot of families, the first thing they scoop on their plate, sports. Man, I'm gonna take me some ballet, kaboom! And then what they try to do is they try to fit everything in and around sports. And if there's a little more room left on their plate for church, eh, I'll put a plop of it on there for today. We often put the most important thing on our plate or schedule first. And what is on our plate or schedule first often shows what is the most important thing. We often put the most important thing on our plate and schedule first. And what we put on our plate or schedule first often shows the most important things. We prioritize what we're devoted to, and what we're devoted to we prioritize. That's true. You prioritize what you're devoted to. And what you're devoted to is what you prioritize. And in the snapshot of the ideal church that changed the world, literally, what those people were devoted to 
was, man, what was going on in that body, what they were hearing in that body, their engagement in that body. I think an opportunity in America, now again, we're talking from a Western perspective, because you give this sermon in China or in persecuted countries, it's like, it is not this sermon. They get it. Here's an opportunity in modern evangelical America today to be more devoted to church is by prioritizing church. Second thing is this, again, food. I ain't got no illustrations except food. I think my mother-in-law turned 70, right? Was it 70? And my in-laws were kind and took us, a whole family on a Disney cruise. It was amazing. I would, pro- man, I'd put me a Disney cruise on my plate first. That was great. I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise, but a Disney cruise, there's these different cafeterias. You walk into this one main cafeteria, and here's the reaction. You can get it going to that cafeteria, and you can be like, I want some waffles. I'm going to go over here and waffles. Ooh, I want some egg foo young. I'll get me a little egg foo young. Man, some chicken parm would be really good. Let me get that. Ooh, sushi. You can get a little bit of everything from all different ethnicities, cultures, genres, and you can walk through the smorgasbord of the Disney cruise food line, and you can get whatever you want, and you can take a little bit of whatever you want from wherever you want it. One little Asian food, one little Spanish food, fill it all up with a little bit of everything. And again, what I've observed in church, this could be my last sermon, Father, give us wisdom into the next steps, God, my family. Okay, this is what I've seen in church. Many Christians think that they're in the Disney cafeteria when it comes to church. It's true. I love the local church. I'm a pastor not mad at this church. I'm a pastor who adores the local church, who thinks it is the way that God wants to change the world. That's why this matters. And what some Christians do is they're like, oh, I'm in like the 20-mile radius of the Disney smorgasbord of what I want. So that church has pretty good teaching. I'll go there for teaching. But eh, women's ministry, ah, so I'm going to go over there for some of that. Oh, I just wish that church's kids' ministry was a good, the women's ministry. So I'm going to go there for some teaching. I'll get me some women's ministry over there. I'll take my elementary kids over to that program at that church. Oh, their student ministry isn't as good as that church. So then on the next day of the week, I'll drive over to this church. And they're sampling from four different churches and putting it all on their plate, but they're devoted to none of them. Sampling from five or six, but devoted to none of them. Listen, right? They're consuming different churches' meals instead of participating fully in any one church. I am 99% sure that unless it's just you in your house, you are never going to find a church that gives you everything you want. Accept it. Accept it. We were a bunch of flawed people trying to do life together, led by flawed people. Right? Never going to do it perfectly. And, and, and I think, man, you just, what we need to do sometimes is just pick a church and engage in that church. Because you're never going to find one that's perfect, but that shouldn't stop you from picking one. Pick a church that preaches God's word and holds it in a high standard that believes that Jesus died for your sins and believes this is true. And yeah, does it have everything you want? No, it won't. But you're not doing yourself any favors. You're not doing that church any favors from sampling from the smorgasbord of churches. I think an opportunity for Christians to be more devoted to churches is to prioritize church and to pick a church.
First trait was a church is empowered by God. Second trait is that it is filled with people who are devoted and committed. Next week, we're going to really press into what does this mean about apostles' teaching, and there's awe, and there's wonder and favor. But just final thought for this week, and I'll ask the worship team to come up here. Skipping over one, what we see in Acts 2.42 is we're going to skip something we're going to come back to, but one of the things they were devoted to was the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. That's an interchangeable term. It means two different things. It, it is a term that's literally referred to as, man, sometimes we have dinner together. But it's an also a term that refers to the Lord's Supper, to communion. One thing that they were devoted to, right, third trait, is that they kept Jesus and his work central. At the very centrality of what they were about and the foundation of what they were about was Jesus and his work. And one of the things that they devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. And so we today have an opportunity to devote ourselves to the same thing. We today as a community of people who are imperfect, who are flawed, who love each other, who drive each other crazy, have the opportunity to set aside all of our preferences and say, you know what, we're going to align and unify around the very thing that is the core of who we are, the centrality of the gospel. And the gospel is that your acceptance with God and from God does not depend upon how good you are. Your acceptance by God depends upon the fact that Jesus was perfect for you. And we unite around that. We combine around that. All of us are equal at the foot of the cross. All of us are sinners at the foot of the cross. And all of us are saved by Jesus at the foot of the cross. Democrats, Republicans, white-collar, blue-collar, likes pizza, hates pizza. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And are we willing to unite more tightly around Jesus together than perhaps we ever have before? We have an opportunity to do that. I'll ask the two elders, David and Mark, if you guys can come forward to hold the trays. And I'm going to read to you what Paul said and ask you to reflect upon this for a moment. Then I'll invite you to come forward. Here's what Paul says about this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have an opportunity to proclaim what unifies us. You have an opportunity to claim to what has saved you. And we have an opportunity together to remember and cling to what Jesus did for us until the day that he comes. And we do this together saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. When you're ready. As you're ready, I'll invite you to come forward to get the prepackaged elements, then you can return them to your seats and take them in your own time. <laughs>